Father, we're thankful for your graciousness and your love, for the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us, who believe and walk in you. And Father, we're grateful for the time that we can have to fellowship together and the joy that we can share together for the common faith that unites us and for the Word of God, which is the center of our focus, the, the fountainhead of truth that guides us on our way. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at another uh, portion of your Word today, that it will be instructive to us, not just in an intellectual way, but will reach down into our hearts and touch us and stimulate our faith and our hope and our commitment. And, Father, even as we have so often read in James and, and, and quoted uh, from James. Uh, may the Word of God not just be heard by us, but may we be doers, not just hearers. Father, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to the 24th chapter of Genesis and begin at verse 50. We began this little section of chapter 24 last week. Genesis 24, beginning at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And it came about when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. And the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, they said, send me away. he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say ten. Afterwards she may go. He said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent, her, they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abram's, Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. We have, of course, in this 24th chapter, the account of a very persistent and faithful servant of Abraham, a man who was obviously trustworthy in the hands of, uh, with any business in his hands that Abraham might have given to him. We find that he was not satisfied to sit down and eat a meal and to enjoy himself until this business matter had been settled. And he knew that this lady was the choice of the Lord, that she was willing and they were willing for her to go. And then he would sit down and enjoy the hospitality of this fine family. Well, that might seem like about as far as you ought to push anybody. But of course, the next morning he got up and he was ready to go back to Canaan already. He insisted that uh, they allow him to leave and that Rebekah go with him. Now, he could have 
whiled away many hours, many days, literally a week or more of time. That wouldn't have been too difficult to do, simply in enjoying himself there and enjoying their hospitality and, and the good rapport that certainly would develop further between him and the family. He could have simply said, I have done a good job, I, I deserve this, and thus basked in the hospitality there. But he was not ready to do that because to him the job was not yet done. It wasn't done until he had delivered Rebekah to Isaac. And so that was his goal. And he was not willing to even sit down and enjoy a brief respite until the work was done. There is a time for rest, a time for recreation. There is a time for creature comfort. All of us need to have some time to rest, to recreate, or whatever. But for many of us, uh, certainly the amount of time that can be given to that is by necessity limited. And for all of us, it should be limited. It should be indulged in, really, for the purpose of restoration of our mind, our body, and our spirit, so they were better, better able to serve the Lord. It seems that recreation and rest and, and just kind of drawing it all in to, to meet the, need, the desires of the flesh should never be for a Christian an end in itself. It should not be a goal that we shoot for. We're not to live for these things even as the world does. <laughs> do we have shakers above us, or what do we have? I don't. Junior hires. Junior hires. Eh, not much difference, I suppose. Um, <laughs> you've got them in training already, huh? Well, they are definitely moving from one side to the other. Jesus... <laughs> Jesus tells us, as we have so often read in the Gospels, that his followers are to deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow him. Now, by that, he certainly did not mean that we're all to put on hair shirts, sleep on beds of nails, and eat grasshoppers. You know, that's, that's not what he was saying uh, by what he gave there. But what he was saying, what he was speaking to was the attitude that should be in us. We should have an attitude of self-giving rather than an attitude of self-indulgence. Uh, we live in a society, as we noted uh, end of class last week, and as we all are aware of, we live in a self-indulgent society. We live in a society where having pleasure is, is the goal, the end of life. I mean, that's the purpose for which you work all week, to have a big blast of a weekend or, or whatever. And although certainly most of us look forward to the weekend after the end of a work week, but I hope we don't look forward to it in the same sense that the world does, and, and that's the whole focus of our life, the focus of our attention, to uh, just self-indulge. Uh, Self-giving is, is really the name of Christianity. That's what Christ did. He gave himself that we might have eternal life. God gave his best gift, his son, that we might have eternal life. And, and Jesus made it clear that we are to respond in like manner, and we are to be self-giving people. 
giving of ourselves to those around us and, of course, to the ongoing work of God. And so this servant is a, is a wonderful example of that, as we noted last week. <laughs> I mean, he was a pre-Christian Christian, and if you want to talk about it that way. Uh, certainly, his walk with the Lord was exemplary to us even today. And we should look to him as a model when it comes to uh, doing the work that God has called us to do and not quitting before the time to quit. Now, Rebecca's mother and her brother, we read in here, requested that there be a delay before the departure take place, at least 10 days, that uh, he would kick back and rest and allow the girl to remain and, and for them to say their goodbyes and do all the preparation before she left for Canaan. And from the human point of view, was that unreasonable? Hardly was that unreasonable because they hadn't yet known this man 24 hours. <laughs> and she hadn't even known the request, you know, for even half that length of time. And so it seems a little strange that, you know, from, from the, their perspective anyway, that this man wouldn't be willing to say, oh, sure, that's, that's very reasonable. Why not? I'll just take my ease here and, and, and you take your... Uh, leave of her on a, on a, uh, you know, a slow 10-day basis. The whole thing was rather sudden. They might well have reasoned that, uh, well, you know, it could have taken you a lot longer to find her. <laughs> you know? and, and so you have to kind of take that into account, too. And uh, certainly Abraham wouldn't begrudge a ten, another 10 days. After all, it's been weeks and weeks. It'll be more weeks uh, yet. So what's another 10 days in the process? Well, the servant insisted that he needed to leave immediately. And I think, even though it's not expressed specifically, that uh, the following three reasons that are listed there on your outline are at least uh, possible reasons that were in his mind why he should leave immediately. First of all, to delay only gave them longer time to consider that maybe they didn't want to do this. To think about the fact that they were going, she was going to be so far away and to think that, you know, we don't really know this guy and, and he says he's from Abraham, but is he really from Abraham? What do we know about Isaac? We know nothing about Isaac. He didn't want that time to be spent for them to consider these things or change their minds. Secondly, and I think probably more importantly was, God had made his will crystal clear. I mean, God had opened the door, bing, 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 one after the other, the doors had been opened in answer to his prayer. And why fiddle around? Why waste time? God's, mind, uh, God's will is clear. Let's go. Let's do it. I was reminded uh, when thinking about that, of the passage in Luke, which sounds a little strong to us sometimes, I think, in Luke 9, where Jesus was speaking, and beginning at verse 59, to those who said that they would go with him. And he reminded them that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but he has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure you want to do this? But they said so. And so then he said to another, follow me. But the person responded, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. 
And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, it sounds pretty strong, sounds pretty harsh, if you take it uh, straight out as it's said, and you don't think in terms of what Jesus meant by this. It, it certain, seems certain to me that what Jesus is saying, he knew the hearts of these individuals who were responding to him. And uh, Jesus is saying that if, if you go off and busy yourself with these things, you're going to forget all about your commitment and you'll never follow. Uh, what I want you to do is make your commitment true and follow through with it. He's not being harsh. He's saying, I don't give a care about your, your dying father. I don't care, you know, does Jesus really not want us to say goodbye to those who are our loved ones if we're going on a missionary journey for him? No, he's not saying that. Uh, the, the point is that uh, if this person who was saying, I'll follow you, but permit me to say goodbye, most likely in his mind he was going to go back and kind of dally and, and diddle around and, and never really follow. And, and Jesus wants us, of course, to say goodbye if we're actually going to take off and, and go someplace. And so I think that's really behind this here. The... Will of God was clear. Why delay in following through? Mary? How about the most person who would enjoy this tale and how God answered everything would be Abraham. And if Abraham was so old, if I was that servant, I'd have this story that I couldn't wait to get back to tell my master before he died because he would be the one person who would really, really enjoy what I had to tell him. Yeah, I, I believe that was in his heart. I think he was literally excited with the way that God had answered mm -hmm. prayer. And I think he was pretty excited to tell Isaac, too, uh, about this whole thing. After all, he was bringing the prize to Isaac, uh, too. And oh, I'm, I'm sure that that was uh, in his mind and in his heart at the time. And I think he was thrilling, you know, it was thrilling him all the way home, <laughs> you know, to have done a job so well. But all the time he was giving credit to the Lord as mm -hmm. the Lord leading him, and that's... I think why he's such a good example to us. And, and I think that's truly part of the third uh, point that uh, I have uh, given there, that Abraham, Abraham and Isaac were waiting. And they had been waiting for weeks, and he couldn't think of any reason why he should make them wait another 10 days beyond, because they needed to hear and to see. He truly loved Abraham, and he loved Isaac, and he wanted to do the best job he could for them, and to dilly-dally around would not be doing the best job in his own opinion. Uh, so he wanted to head out immediately. It's very interesting that uh, you know, the scripture talks about our speech being sprinkled with uh, the things of the Lord, in effect, and uh, he does this as he speaks through here. And as he, in verse 56, says, and, and, and he said to them, Do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. So he is making the request, giving to the request the strength, the force of God's name. The Lord has prospered my way, so don't hinder me. See, God is with me. God has opened the door. God has guided me. So who would you be to stand in my way and say, I've got to sit around for another 
10 days. That seems to be implied, although not specifically expressed here. If they were to say, oh no, we insist, she's got to stay another 10 days, it would appear in the face of what he had said that they were resisting the will of God. Now, whatever again was their personal faith in the Lord, we don't know. But certainly they were uh, people who understood the power of God, whoever the God was that mo was most important in their life at that time. And, and they knew the serious ramifications of resisting the will of God, and they were not willing to do that. And that, I think, had a big role to play in the fact that they were willing to listen and to change their mind. But you'll notice they would not say, okay, you're right, we'll let her go. But they threw the burden off their own shoulders and put the burden on Rebecca. Well, let's ask the girl. Let's see what she wants to do. Now, certainly in their own minds, they probably thought, Rebecca hardly, hardly even knows this servant. She knows nothing really about Abraham, nothing about Isaac. This is brand new in her life. It's just suddenly come like a bolt out of the blue. Certainly she's going to want time to think about it. She's going to want time to get her, her uh, wardrobe together to... Uh, to say goodbye to her friends and her family. So let's just ask her, and what can the guy say? If she says, no, I want to wait 10 days, what can he do? You know? So they said, well, let's, let's ask the girl. Well, we know how the girl responded with three words, I will go. And the implication was, I will go today. I will go immediately. I need no further time to delay. How come she did that? Is that reasonable? Is that what someone that you could think of would do, would respond in a situation like this? Especially somebody who had as much going for her as Rebecca seems to have had going for her. I think it's a clear indication that God was at work in her heart. God had prepared her. God had put in her an inner sense of peace. I think God had even put in her an excitement. I'm going to marry a great Bedouin sheik. <laughs> you know, not the, the local tanner over here, <laughs> you know, or, or the carrot seller in the marketplace. I'm going to marry this mysterious man of the desert. <laughs> This man with vast flocks that sweep over the hillsides. A man of great wealth. A man whose God is obviously powerful. I think that was intriguing to her. And I think she was willing to be a part of this new exciting drama in her life. Rebecca's mother and brother acquiesced to the request and they sent her away. The scripture says that they sent her away with her own personal maid that very day. At her departure, we read in this passage here that they gave her a, what is obviously, apparently at least, a traditional Near Eastern blessing. May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them wishing upon her numerous and powerful progeny. Little did they know, little did they know, how that this would be blessed in a mighty way by God 
in that, of course, ultimately her descendant would be the Messiah. Something you mentioned uh, back before you went on vacation uh, in connection with the servants coming to the house of, uh, of Rebecca. Uh, they knew that they were part of the uh, clan of which, the covenant clan of which Abraham was the chief patriarch. Uh, to support a little further what you just said about her willingness to go being motivated by God, this had probably been something that had been ingrained into their thinking, you know, in terms of their heritage over the years. And uh, then now when he comes, the Holy Spirit confirms this, and all of a sudden it just ignites in her awareness, uh, you know, that, hey, I'm a part of the covenant tradition here. <coughs> yes, I'm sure that's true, to whatever extent they understood it, personally, individually at this time. It's hard to, for us to really know, because it doesn't spell it out specifically, but I think that's a... That's really a, a good point to note. Let's read uh, the last uh, verses of the chapter, beginning at verse 61, Genesis 24. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahiroi, for he was living in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. And she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her to his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Then Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I was just thinking this morning, what a great movie this chapter would make. <laughs> if he could just get somebody to make it who'd stick to the script, <laughs> this script, <laughs> and not uh, goof it all up, but... It would make such a, a wonderful, moving, I think, drama, you know, with intense emphasis, of course, on romance, but it would be uh, a wonderful thing. Of course, it's a wonderful thing as we, as we read it here. Verse 61 goes beyond the previous passage, which said that the girl was given her nurse to go along with her, and it says, Rebecca arose with her maids, uh, plural and they mounted the camels and departed. So obviously several young uh, women were given to go with Rebekah down to Canaan, which indicates a couple of things here. First of all, that the family was of some substance to possess apparently several servant girls who could go along. And secondly, these must have been servant girls who were unattached at any point because they were going to be <laughs> moving clear to Canaan and uh, obviously they couldn't be sent away from husband and family if they happened to have one in, in the area there of Paden Aram. So these are probably young, very young girls, probably even in their teens. They're being sent off to go with uh, Rebecca down into Canaan. Now, 
I, I think that it can be implied that the men had ridden the camels to Paden Aram, but now the men will be walking and the ladies will be riding uh, the camels back to, to Canaan. And so what this means is, I think, that uh, between verse 61 and verse 64, we're looking at a time frame of approximately a month, give or take a little time, because these men would have to walk the entire distance back. And, uh, you know, walking 500 miles, leading cam camels over hills and down through valleys and past springs and, and various communities along the way, it, it probably would have taken the better part of a month at least to make the trip back. We have a sudden change of venue in verse 62 where we read, Now Isaac had come from going to Bir Lahairoi, for he was living in the Negev, in the south, uh, in that dry area south of Hebron, down out of the high country in the plain or plateau area south of Hebron. Why? Abraham apparently was still living in Hebron. But it's very possible that what we have here is a situation similar to that which caused Abraham and Lot to part in the first place. The herds had just become too vast for the area around Hebron to support them. And so it, it could very well be here that Isaac had taken a portion of the flocks and moved them down into the Negev and he was taking care of them down there, living near, we're told, Bir Lahairoi. And you remember that that means well of the living one who sees me. And that was the well that was important in the life of whom? Well, Abraham indirectly, but directly to Hagar, right, to Hagar, uh, because it was there which she had her first encounter with the Lord directly, when she was pregnant with uh, Ishmael. Now, Bir Lahairoi was located about 90 miles southwest of Hebron, uh, and Isaac was probably uh, living there at the time that his father sent the servant off. Now, whether Isaac was visiting with Abraham, and that's partly what stimulated Abraham to send his servant off, or whether he sent his servant off while Isaac was down at Bir Lahairoi without telling him at the particular time. We don't know any of those things. It's, it's just a matter of, would be a matter of speculation. But the passage reveals no surprise. He knows that the servant is returning, hopefully, with a daughter of Abraham's brother's family. And so he's expecting it. So read in whatever you like. Did a message come down to say that this is what Abraham had done? Was Isaac with Abraham when it was done? Whatever the case was, communication had taken place, and Isaac knew that uh, this was in the process. Now the reference here to his mother's tent, we read that Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, seems to indicate that he was at Hebron at the time that this event takes place. In other words, he has come back up from Beer Lahairoi. He's left the flocks in charge of the many servants. Remember, I, uh, Abraham had a very large retinue of followers, of people in his employ. 
He was able to put together an army of over 400 men to go fight a battle. So at that time, we noted that would have meant probably had at least 2,000 in his, his overall household. So there were plenty of herdsmen to take care of the animals while Isaac returned north to be with his father at the time the caravan returned. That seems to be the scenario as, as we look at this here, although it doesn't say this explicitly, but it does say here in, in verse 62, now Isaac was, had come from going to Beer Lahairoi. <laughs> kind of a little bit of awkward English there, but nevertheless it seems to indicate he had come back from Beer Lahairoi and was at Hebron at the time that the caravan came. He was out for an evening stroll by himself. I think he was doing this evening after evening. <laughs> he was anticipating the return of the caravan. After all, this was going to be a life-transforming encounter. This was not just a matter of bringing some friend to say hello to. I mean, this was going to be his life's companion. And therefore, I think he was very concerned and very, uh, what, anxious maybe, or at least excited about what was about to take place. And so in, in anticipation, I think every evening he went out uh, to pace, to, to probably pray, to meditate, and to look off in the horizon towards the north to see if a caravan was coming, bearing the one that he hoped would be his wife. What about Rebecca? What was happening with Rebecca on this four weeks or so of journeying uh, from Paden Aram to, to Canaan? You know, the scripture doesn't go into any details, but we have to think, you know, there's 20, 30 days she spent en route. What was going on in her mind? Uh, was she frequently uh, plying the Abraham servants with questions? I think so. I think she was, I mean, what did she know? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> you know, she's on this journey 24 hours after the first time she meets this guy. So I'm sure she's saying, Tell me, what is Abraham like? What is Isaac like? Uh, what is Canaan like? Uh, what was Sarah like? I, I think she was asking all these questions. I think she wanted to know as much as possible about this family because she was going to be intimately connected with this family. And I think she wanted to be reassured that she'd done the right thing. Now, even if you know that God has led you to do a certain thing, times of uncertainty will come. <laughs> And there will be times when you wonder, because things aren't going seemingly the right way, did God really lead me to do this? Was I really listening? Is, is this going to make me happy? Have I made a big mistake here? You know, a lot of people, after they get married, think, oh, man, have I made a big blunder here? You know, <laughs> Bad time to think that. But nevertheless, you know, that comes along. And you need that reassurance that what you've done is right. And I think that's what she wanted to have satisfied here, even though it's not explicitly stated. So you have to kind of picture this, you know. I think it's towards the evening. The caravan is lumbering across the landscape at a camel, camel's walk. <laughs> and uh, Isaac is out there kind of scanning the horizon, looking, and he sees some camels coming. But, you know, he probably had seen other caravans go through the area from time to time. I mean, after all, Hebron is more or less on <coughs> one of the uh, trade routes of that part of the world, although not the major trade route, but nevertheless one through which caravans certainly would have traveled. Oh, is this the one? 
Am I about to encounter the one who is to be my bride? I think both were excitedly awaiting that first meeting. When he saw the caravan coming, you know, in in modern days, you know, the guy's got to be cool, right? Don't show any excitement. Just kind of sit there and smoke your pipe and twiddle with your gun or whatever it is, you know, they do in the Westerns. (laughs) You know, got to be cool, man. He sees the caravan, he hops to his feet, and he starts walking for that caravan, you know? I mean, the guy's excited. He wants to, to have uh, you know, knowledge of what's happening. There's expectancy there. I think as he walked through the caravan, I, I think he communicated with his God. I think he prayed as he walked because he knew this was going to be a life-transforming uh, encounter. I think he walked briskly. I don't think he just strolled, you know, coolly forward uh, towards the oncoming camels. With several ladies aboard the camels, he couldn't be sure, of course, which one was the one uh, there. Uh, Off in the distance, he wouldn't be able to tell much about them anyway. But for Rebecca, there was no confusion. There was only one man walking towards the caravan. The only confusion was, was this Isaac or not? Well, when the servant ordered the camel caravan to stop and said, let's dismount, Certainly she knew that whoever was coming was pretty important if it wasn't Isaac. And, uh, but she was not willing to just wait and find out. As we read in the, the passage, you know, notice how the verses are, are couched. It says, Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. It says, when she saw Isaac, but she didn't know it was Isaac at that moment. And she said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? That obviously makes it clear to us that she wasn't sure who it was. And he said, it is my master. Think about the heartbeats now. Certainly the heartbeats are elevating. Particularly for Rebecca, once she is told that that is Isaac. And after all, the man she is committing herself to live with until she dies, is walking towards her. What is he like, really? The servant has probably told her many things, but are there things that she's going to discover she hasn't been told? Well, certainly so. Will they be good? Will they be not so good? Now, we realize in those days there wasn't a whole library full of uh, books on how to be married and how to live with your partner and all the books that we have available to us today, but the same kinds of thoughts certainly went through her mind as go through the minds of modern women as they think about uh, marriage. Now, the Near Eastern custom was that the bridegroom was not to see his bride, once a commitment had been made, uh, unveiled until the wedding bed. And so, as she was told that this is Isaac, the scripture tells us she fixed her veil across her face so that she would not look face to face into uh, the eyes of this man. She would remain veiled until that uh, evening after the marriage when he would take her into his mother's tent. Now, think about the advantage here. She had the advantage. He wasn't veiled. (laughs) She would be able to tell what type of person he was, at least physically, but he would not be able to tell what her features were, at least in her face, at this time. He would be able to tell her voice and her mannerisms 
and he could go by what the servant told him. And certainly the servant told him many good things because the early passage, part of the passage says the servant noted that she was a beautiful woman. And I think the beauty that he was talking about there was physical beauty because that's all he could have known at that point in time. Uh, and so he had to go by what he was told. Now, very interesting, I think, here is notice how this passage proceeds. Verse 66, the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. As Mary was saying uh, a few moments ago, I, I think he was excited to share this with Isaac and then later with Abraham. I, I think he felt that the Lord had enabled him to do a job very, very well. And he was excited to, to relate this. I don't think you could keep him shut up. And then notice verse 67. Then Isaac brought her to his mother's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was coming. It sounds like he just led her from the camel to the tent, yeah. you know? <laughs> and our society even would frown on that, at least legally, in, in the situation. I don't think that at all is what happened. Moses, as the Lord revealed it to him, just kind of summed it all up there, uh, and, and jumped over a great deal of information, I think, which we could have known had it been written in detail, which we may be interested in, but the Lord didn't feel was necessary to take the space to explain. I think it, hidden in the middle of verse 67 is a great celebration. Think about it. Abraham is a great Bedouin prince. He is highly respected in his community. He's a man of vast wealth and power. And is he just going to have his son take this girl off to the tent and it's all said and done with? I don't think so. I think there was a great wedding feast and festival held. And all the neighbors were invited. And all of the people who were part of, of Abraham's community were invited. After all, this was going to be their new mistress. And so I think we're talking about here a great celebration guy was wealthy. I didn't think he put on one of these little quiet weddings with, you know, the couple and two witnesses. I think this was a great celebration. And I think it took days, at least days, to prepare. Certainly certain preparations could be done ahead of time, anticipating the arrival of the caravan. But what if the caravan came back with no bride? That was a possibility. And so I think preparations still had to be done. And so there was a joyous feast given in honor and a, and a ceremony given uh, for the marriage of Isaac and uh, Rebekah. I think it was the biggest thing to hit, hit the Hebron area for a long time. Notice four little words towards the end of the last verse. And he loved her. They had not grown up knowing each other. They hadn't known each other from childhood. Their parents had not committed them to marriage from the time before they were born or some such thing. They hadn't dated for months or for years. They were virtual strangers. They were total strangers at the moment they met. And in the days that followed, because she remained veiled and there was a certain degree of, of distance kept between them, they knew each other hardly at all before they were married and before they went into Sarah's tent together. Love is a matter of the will. He chose to love Rebecca. 
Now, there are certain things which facilitate that love, obviously. But most of the things that we attribute to a facilitating love are merely surface issues which deal more with, with fleshly attraction rather than true love. I think this is a, an important point here. They were not married because they loved each other, but they loved each other because they were married. Now, I'm not advocating, and I don't think the Scripture is advocating, that we go out and marry somebody and then learn to love them. I think the way it functions in our society is just fine. Learn to know and to love a person and then commit yourself to them for a lifetime of marriage. I don't think that the Scripture would have, I don't think you can find any place in Scripture where there would be uh, resistance to that. Because what God is concerned with is that we're committed in love to one another, however that love developed. And of course, we're always reminded of Fiddler on the Roof, right? Where Tevya and Golda were married without uh, really hardly knowing each other. They had been committed to each other by their parents before they were married. And uh, so finally he asks her, well, do you love me? You know, and she goes through this routine of all the things she's done and, you know, beating around the bush. And, and finally, she says, well, I guess I do, you know. And he says, well, I guess I love you too. Well, that doesn't sound exactly like what we might, <laughs> we might want to hear. But, but the point is, see, they have chosen. They have chosen to love each other. We have this ding-dong idea in our society, unfortunately, that people fall in love, and that's hogwash. People don't fall in love. You can't fall in love. It's like when you listen to the radio preacher and he says, I love all of you out there in radio land, and I think, yeah, sure. (laughs) You don't even know who's listening to you. You haven't got a clue who's out there. You don't love me. You can't fall in love. You can't love someone you don't know. It's not possible. We can fall into infatuation. We can have that pitter-patter and that magnetism there because usually some kind of a physical attraction is there. But love, as the Bible talks about love, is not there yet because love is willingness to commit yourself to the good of the other person before your own good. And who's going to do that usually? Uh, you know, on a, on a mere physical attraction. We see how that blows up all the time. Look at Hollywood. You know. Well, which number, husband or wife, is this for you? As these people, they're, they're looking for love, but they're not finding it because neither party knows how to love. They're all in love with themselves so deeply they can't love another. It's a conscious choice. We choose to love. A person. We choose to love our mates. We choose to love our children. We choose to love God. Now, I'm not going to get into a big theological thing here about free will and the sovereignty of God, uh, but there is a way in which we choose to love God or we choose not to love God. And God chose to love us. He didn't fall in love with us. I think I've mentioned this before. <laughs> we, fortunately, we don't sing this song up here. But there was a song that was sung quite often in the church we were at before about uh, I'm falling in love with him over and over and over again, you know, <coughs> falling in love with God. To me, that is, that is heresy. That's, that's 
that's blatant, insipid teaching that has nothing to do with what the Bible talks about. You don't fall in love with God over and over again. You don't fall in love with God in the first place. You choose to love him because of who he is and because he has chosen you. And he chose to love us. He didn't fall in love with us. Can you imagine God falling in love with us, this messy society and these pukey people that lived on this planet? <laughs> you know? God's going to fall in love with us, look down and say, oh, I just love those sweet people. <laughs> While we were yet sinners, the scripture says, Christ died for us. And if that isn't the ultimate measure of love, I don't know what is. You know, to be willing to die for another one, that's the ultimate measure of love. And God chose to love us, not because we were lovable, but because that was his plan and his will and his choice. And we, in response, choose to love him or we do not choose to love him. And uh, yes, God plays a major role in all of that, and, and God is sovereign, and we can't deny his sovereignty. But God has given us, by his sovereign choice, the power to reject his love. Anytime we say that we can't love someone or that we have lost our love for someone, what we are really saying is, I have chosen to no longer love that person. It's not, you don't just lose a love. You know, kind of evaporates like water in a hot pavement. We have chosen. We've, we've, it's an act of our will. I choose not to love that person anymore. I have, you know, no longer the ability to, to love this person. This passage that I'd like to read, it, I, don't, I don't think it's on your outline, but it doesn't just apply to marriage, but it applies, I think, to the whole scene relative to Christians. From Colossians chapter 3, we read a very, very powerful, poignant, and pointed passage relative to who we are as Christians, who we ought to be. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen by God... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to, the go to, to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father." To me, that little passage in a nutshell explains what the Christian life is supposed to be and what we are supposed to be as Christians. To our mate, to our parents, to our children, to our neighbors and our friends, to the church community, this is what we are to be. And, and this all is summed up, I think, in love, where it says to bear with one another and forgive each other. To have compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. This is all, I think, summed up within the broad scope of what is love. It's not possible 
for us to constantly bear up with one another's faults and frailties. It's not possible for us to go around forgiving each other unless love is at the root of this. Someone I love deeply, I can forgive for a fault or for an offense, and hopefully they me. But if I don't really love them, do I really forgive them? I might say, oh, well, it, it's, it's okay, I understand. But inside there's still that thought, they're a jerk, you know. And, and that's not of Christ. And certainly that cannot be within a marriage relationship. We've got to, to love as Christ loves us. And I think that it's this kind of a relationship which, of course, was built by God into Isaac and into Rebecca and is, is what developed in that marriage and that relationship, although it couldn't have developed before the marriage because they didn't know each other for this kind of love and relationship to develop. Isaac had loved his mother dearly, and he missed her. However, she did not live to see this lady, Rebecca, but he knew that she would have been absolutely delighted with Rebecca as Isaac's partner. She couldn't have chosen a better person herself. And I think he knew that. And I hope he shared that with Rebecca. And this was, the scripture I think indicates, a great comfort to him. And so we have the birth of a wonderful relationship here. Oh, it's got its problems. And Isaac won't be a perfect husband and Rebecca won't be a perfect wife, as we well know, no one has ever been, including you or me. But uh, I think it led to a, a good relationship and was part of God's plan, as Dr. Walmart was saying, the, the, uh, the development of this covenant and the expression of the covenant and, and the bringing of this covenant people into existence as God had made this uh, covenant originally with uh, Abraham. Next week, <laughs> we're going to be again looking at chapter 25, and, and it starts out with five interesting words. Now, Abraham took another wife. <laughs> Mary was saying that, you know, Abraham being so old, he, he needed to have this good story to excite him. Yes, he was very old, but not so old that he didn't take another wife and father six sons and possibly, of course, some daughters too. So uh, we'll look at that uh, next week.